The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome a farmer to be our guest, Mr. Stephen Sprinkle. He is actually based in California, and that is with good reason, because we're going to be talking about a ballot issue that has, I think, implications not only for California, but the rest of the country. Mr. Sprinkle is a certified organic farmer. He has worked in this sector since 1975. He has farmed in California, Texas, Hawaii. He is presently the Cornucopia Board President, and I should just mention that Cornucopia is an organic watchdog organization that does a lot of public interest research. He is also a former certification inspector and administrator. He was a former columnist for Acres USA, which is an eco-agricultural publication, and he grows organic seeds for himself and commercially. So, Steve, without further ado, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. I spent a little time getting to know you online, and I read a wonderful blog post in which you described how the vegetables that you grow are, in effect, very much a part of the water system on which you depend, and how we treat the water then influences the quality of our vegetables and then ultimately our health because we eat them. And I really appreciated that connection, and I sense that that's pretty common among organic farmers. Well, it's a key feature in especially the approach that a lot of pioneer organic farmers took in trying to find a place to farm that was free of contaminants, mm-hmm. either windborne or waterborne contaminants. And it's a question that's asked on organic certification questionnaires with regard to the water source. Is it known to be contaminated and does, is it ever tested and so on? So mm-hmm. um, our water is essentially coming out of the wilderness. It's coming from a well and coming right out of a wilderness of hundreds and hundreds of square miles of nothing but pine trees and deer and sagebrush. And now we're talking about another kind of contamination, and that is the contamination with genetically engineered or genetically modified pollen. And this creates a big problem for organic farmers, as I understand, as well as organic consumers, because As an organic consumer myself, I do not want to consume genetically modified ingredients in my foods. I'm not comfortable with their safety testing. I don't think they've ever been tested for long-term safety, both for the environment and for public health. So I was anxious to get your perspective about what it means to an organic farmer to have this stray pollen in your fields. Well, I'm lucky myself in that I don't have any neighbors right now who are spraying anything. However, about a mile and a half away from me, there is a conventional farm. And if they ever contemplated growing seeds, similar to what I'm growing, it's possible that if they grew genetically modified seeds, that I could get contaminated by insects carrying pollen or the wind. This is a significant issue to us, especially if we're involved in horticulture. Not much horticulture presently, even is being experimented with, although we know that there are significant seed stocks that have been modified as an experiment. But if we don't get Proposition 37 passed in California, then this will probably end up ushering in 
a whole new round of releases, or in other words, authorizations from EPA and USDA to grow genetically modified vegetables that will be sprayed with Roundup, like spinach, carrots, lettuce, and so on. Mm-hmm. And this is where a significant majority percentage of all the fresh fruits and vegetables come from in the United States is from California. Steve, let me ask you, let's back up just a little bit, and let, let's start by describing what Proposition 37 is. And this is solely in California, but I want to let our listeners nationwide understand that all eyes are on California. This is a significant national issue, and I want you to help us understand why. So what is Proposition 37? Proposition 37 requires labeling in grocery stores, a point of purchase, on the shelf, on the product itself, that says that the product contains genetically modified ingredients. And this has turned out to be a fairly significant threat and challenge to mainstream corporate manufacturers and food processors like Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Frito-Lay, ConAgra, General Mills, the Mars Corporation, because they use an awful lot of corn syrup to sweeten all the products they sell. Exactly. And so if that comes to pass, then Coca-Cola and Mars candy bars and so on will have to have a label on it. They don't want to begin having a label because consumers will then learn more about genetically modified foods. It's not essentially that to begin with, it will put an onus on the food, but it will at least raise the question in the consumer's mind, do they know what it means if there are genetically modified organisms in the food they're eating? Will labeling benefit the organic farmer? I think it may benefit the organic market, but I think that the, what, the, what the labeling will probably do is would probably only offer the consumer the opportunity to make an informed choice. Exactly. I don't think that the alternative for Pepsi, Coca-Cola, and General Mills uh, would be to change their product ingredient constituency and use organic food. I think that what, what down the road may happen is that another market for conventional but non-genetically modified foods will probably grow. It already exists, but it will probably expand. Mm-hmm. Well, we know from consumer surveys that consumers consistently say, yeah, I'd like more transparency in my food system. I'd like to know what's in my food. I'd like to know what I'm feeding my children. And I think there are some especially vulnerable populations, such as women of childbearing years and children, where we really do want to make sure that they're eating foods that have been tested to be safe. And so I, I subscribe to the precautionary principle, and if there's a shadow of a doubt, let's not put these vulnerable people at risk. But I also see farmers as being vulnerable because, you know, your market is at stake. And what I'm reading now is that there's interest in using crop insurance to help pay farmers off who have been contaminated with genetically engineered pollen, and yet that's really the taxpayers covering the failure to be diligent if you're growing GMOs. Am I thinking correctly about that? Uh, Yes. In other words, it will change the marketability of an organic crop. For example, any kind of corn crop grown by an organic farmer, whether it's uh, popcorn or feed corn or sweet corn, and if it becomes contaminated with a genetically modified corn crop adjacent, 
and the requirements for sale are that it should meet the tolerances established for genetically modified contamination, and they don't meet it, then it cannot be sold to the market. So a lot of these growers who have, especially export market, are pre-tested before shipping. And then if they don't pass the test, then they don't get the sale. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of involved in this originally quite some time ago. I would say this now goes back 12 or 13 years ago. And the original letter I wrote to Risk Management Agency, I wanted them to rule on the admissibility of the man-made disaster. This is concerning disaster relief for people who who have their crop wiped out either by drought or flooding or for some other reason. And I wanted them to start ruling on this to try to create a way to define what exactly genetically modified crops were because for an organic farmer, a genetically modified crop is a man-made disaster. If you take it one step down from there, since we don't really know what the implications are to human health, it's possible that genetically modified agriculture and all these products that are being manufactured now may be a man-made disaster. It may be that the human populace is being treated as one big guinea pig experiment. Mm -hmm. And that because we have never really done any kind of health testing, and these kinds of things may not end up being like instant mortality, but it might be something with regard to autism, fibromyalgia, a whole host of things that have risen up in the last 20 years, kind of curiously, right around the same time genetically modified foods were introduced. Yeah, it is interesting to look at what's changed from a public health standpoint. We have a significant increase in allergies, for example, and this isn't just self-reported allergies. These are people who have been discharged from a hospital due to an allergic reaction, so we know that they are tried and true allergic cases. We've seen a tremendous spike in allergic responses. We've also seen a rise in asthma and like you say, uh, the the autism rates are increasing. We don't know what is behind that. But again, going back to that precautionary principle, I'd like to think that if there's any chance that what we're spraying on our fields could be contributing to an, an immunological disorder or some sort of inflammatory change, that we might stop and test to make sure before we release this into the environment. So I want to know from a farmer's perspective how you're communicating, you know, when you get together with other farmers, what is your strategy in thinking and helping consumers understand why this is so critical for you? Well, I come in contact with consumers through my store and through the CSA, and which is a buying club that I, that I have, a 60-member buying club, and also through the farmer's market. And I was very active in the genetically modified, you know, the antagonistic campaign against it up until about 2005. I went to meetings. I served on an FDA commission that attended UN meetings in Ottawa. I was very active in this. And right around 2005, I kind of threw in the towel and I thought, you know, I think Monsanto is just going to win because it doesn't really matter who's president. It doesn't really matter who's the APA chief. And it really doesn't matter how many examples and how much evidence we have with regard to how kind of twisted this whole GMO scenario has been economically, politically, with regard to monopoly and all that. I just threw it in. I said, forget it. But then a couple of years after that, I started hearing from a lot of people that all of a sudden they've gotten up to speed. I was really amazed at how much cognition and how much complicated 
information just the rank-and-file consumer now had because the education finally caught up with the populace. And so the end result for us here is Proposition 37. We have nearly a million signatures, 800,000 signatures or so on the, on the petition, and it's terribly difficult to get that many signatures. Yeah. This is ridiculously difficult. So we have that much. And then we also have thousands and thousands of volunteers, hundreds working in my county alone who are working on this project. So I think we have a very good chance of winning. And, of course, we know that, that we're up against some, some very powerful people. But as far as the farmers go, we're very enthusiastic about consumers leading the charge now because for a long time we felt like we were kind of like outside howling into the wind. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's great power in farmers and consumers working together in relationship and solidarity in trying to get policy change for the betterment of our environment and public health. And listeners, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Stephen Sprinkle. He is a certified organic farmer. He's based now in California. He's got 14 acres of vegetables, but he also raises seeds for himself and the industry. And he is concerned about Proposition 37. He hopes that it will pass. We're talking about this legislation which will mandate GMO labeling on foods that contain genetically engineered ingredients. Proposition 37 will only affect California for now, but I see this as a precedent-setting proposition, and all eyes are on California, and I think it's important to understand the farmer's perspective. So, Steve, tell me a little bit more about Proposition 37 and tell me a little bit more about GMO food. Why do we want to label these foods? What makes them different? What is your understanding on a farm level? What is the difference between a GMO seed and an organic seed? The difference is really fundamental to our argument, and it's also one of the arguments that's being made by the antagonists, the no on 37 people, who say that, This is really nothing different, that we've been hybridizing seed and that we've been changing seeds and we've been changing crops for decades and centuries. However, this is a misstatement. What really is involved here is a transgenic introduction of foreign genes from another plant, another species, even a bacterium, even a disease is introduced into the target crop, say corn, that has now been spliced with Bacillus thuringiensis, Bt, so that the corn is constantly exuding and contains this toxin which kills worms. So we have never done anything even remotely similar to that. So the argumentation that the pro-biotech sector have been using, especially the scientists when they say this kind of thing, because we, we recently have been learning about this, I don't really understand how in the world they can say that kind of thing because it is remarkably different. Transgenic foods, things that cross species barrier, this is a brand new novel technology that we have never even come close to having before. Yes, and it's my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the Bt corn and the Bt cotton is actually classified as a pesticide? Yes. So corn is not classified as a food crop, it's Classified. Well, it had to be because it is because it does contain the pesticide. Very interesting. Okay, so there's the kind of genetically modified seed that contains this 
new kind of bacteria that hadn't been present before. And oh. then there's also a genetically modified seed that produces a plant that can withstand the spraying of glyphosate. Is that correct? That's right. And tell me about that. How does that work? A, a plant that was an attribute to another plant that was identified as resistant to Roundup herbicide, which is the trade name for glyphosate that, that Monsanto Corporation that held the patent on glyphosate uses, that Roundup herbicide would not affect these field crops, these commodity crops, if they had been modified with this resistant gene. And so the first thing out of the block was genetically modified soybeans. So now millions and millions, 80 or 90 million acres in the United States alone are sprayed with Roundup herbicide after they're planted, kills the weeds in the field. In Canada and in parts of the United States, they also spray Roundup on canola, which is a mustard seed product that makes canola oil. And so almost all the canola now has been contaminated with this seed stock. And a very high double-digit percentage, so the majority percentage of all the soybeans grown in the United States now are genetically modified so that they can be resistant to Roundup. And so the question for consumers and for, well, people in the, who are in the environment adjacent to all of this spraying, you know, from one end of Iowa to the other, it's like they're spraying all during the month of May, is what are the health effects if you're spraying intentionally the food you're going to eat with an herbicide? And then taking it one step further, the soybeans are processed. Most of them go into cattle feed. Does it affect the livestock? Well, there are livestock records, anecdotal records, and also research of livestock not thriving, having consumed genetically modified feed of spontaneous abortions in hog populations and so on. So these are fairly well documented. These are things that we've been able to observe uh, because they're not subtle. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, with regard to the introduction of all the genetically modified vegetables, now this will take it one step further. And if we have genetically modified spinach, carrots, and lettuce, that means the actual leaf that the child will eat, that the person will eat, has been sprayed with this herbicide intentionally. Mm -hmm. That's taking it one step further, and it's a big step. This is one of the reasons why we're so very concerned about the potential future of genetically modified foods, sure. not just as they are now, but in the future, because if that comes to pass, I'm sure the consumers are going to really want to know whether or not the spinach and the carrots and the lettuce have been sprayed with Roundup too. Well, I think, you know, Americans are so proud of, having choice, right? And here's this is just a basic way to have some choice about what we're putting in our bodies. I have a, a document here that I thought you might find interesting. It's a technical announcement from the U.S. Geological Survey. And what they did was they tested water. Getting back to our original conversation about how you recognize that the quality of water is so important to the quality of your food. But this report came out, I think they looked at 2007, 1992 to 2007, Overall, agricultural use of glyphosate, that's the active ingredient in Roundup, as you mentioned, has increased from less than 11,000 tons in 1992 to more than 88,000 tons in 2007. And the researcher who was reporting this, he's a chemist, he said, Paul Capel, he says, though glyphosate is the most widely used herbicide in the world, we know very little about its long-term effects to the environment. So 
if consumers want to choose food that has not been treated with or food from crops that have not been sprayed with this herbicide, really right now the only thing that they can do is choose a certified organic labeled food. Is that correct? Yes. Any of the oils, any of the sweeteners that have not been modified. Uh, for example, one recent uh, introduction was genetically modified sugar beets. Mm. And so now the entire sugar supply has been further contaminated by genetically modified sugar. So anything bearing the organic label, which is prohibited to utilize genetically modified ingredients or uh, products in organic farming or in organic processing. So, for example, I don't use manure or compost anymore because I wanted to stay away from handling all this conventionally produced stuff. So I started using certified organic soybean meal as my major source of nitrogen. Mm -hmm. But I would not be able to use conventional soybean meal as a source of nitrogen because we all know that the supply of that has been contaminated and they don't segregate non-GMO from GMO. It's all, essentially all soybean meal now is modified. Mm. You know, it doesn't surprise me then when I look at some of the money that's gone into this campaign in California. It's tremendous. So if we look at a candy company, for example, that likely uses soy-based lecithin, as well yeah. as the high fructose corn syrup and sugar from sugar beets. And just so listeners know, so far... Cane sugar has not been genetically modified. So if you want to avoid GMO sugar, avoid sugar from sugar beets. And it's about 50-50 right now in our country. So the Mars Candy Company donated over $100,000 to defeat Proposition 37. Companies like Pepsi, $590,000 to really keep us in the dark. Godiva Chocolate, $11,000. Hershey chocolate, over $111,000. In my mind, this means to keep consumers in the dark. Don't tell us what we're eating. And for farmers, making it increasingly difficult to get non-GMO or non-contaminated food to the consumer. Yeah, it, it, I think probably the most disappointing, kind of horrifying thing, especially for the pioneer organic community, I suppose I can say I'm a member. I've been doing this for, you know, nearly 40 years now, is that we're kind of concerned when General Mills bought Cascadian. Mm -hmm. We were a little afraid, and we didn't know why, when the Mars Corporation bought Seeds of Change and so on down the line that Hershey now owns Dagoba Chocolate. And so there's a lot of you know, Hain Corporation, um, a lot of these Santa Cruz Naturals, which is now owned by Smuckers. You know, so if you look on the shelves at a natural food store, at Whole Foods or at my grocery store, you will see these labels, and they're, they're ubiquitous labels. And these are all owned by the people that are paying to stop Proposition 37. So we're kind of really... It's beyond being chagrined. I'm personally embarrassed mm -hmm. that General Mills, which owns Cascadian, has put in so much money to defeat Proposition 37, mm -hmm. whereas they should have stayed on the sidelines at the very least. Mm -hmm. So 
what are you supposed to do? You know, the Organic Consumers Association is promoting a boycott. A little bit before I heard about their boycott, I turned to my wife and I said, what is it going to take for us to take all these things off the shelf? And she made a list up, and we're removing everything. It's going to be very difficult because Dean Foods owns Horizon, and Horizon now owns almost all the egg distribution that's coming out of Los Angeles in organic eggs. So we're having to look around for an alternative egg supplier, but we're taking all that stuff off our shelves. Yeah, and I want to let our listeners know about the Cornucopia website. That's www.cornucopia.org. And again, Mr. Sprinkle, you are the chairman of the board or the board president. I'm the president of the board of directors, exactly. Thank you. You've got a wonderful list on your website showing which organic companies have been supporting Proposition 37. And again, that's simply labeling to let consumers know if there are GMO ingredients in their foods. So they're on the right side. There's a whole list of wonderful food companies who have been supporting labeling and protecting consumers' right to know. And on the other side is a list of companies that are, I think the way I would describe it, is sticking a knife both in the back of the consumer and the organic farmer. I think that's probably the best way to put it. We're just really, it's beyond being embarrassed. We just feel like, We've been victimized by them. Now we don't have any reason to continue to support those labels. Steve, we just have a couple of minutes, and I want to make sure I give you an opportunity to let our listeners know anything you'd like from as from an organic farmer's perspective. Well, I think as you said at the beginning of the interview, everyone has their eyes on California now. We know that 50 nations demand labeling. We know that there are whole countries hold large bodies of land. If you look on the map and see how big the island of Hokkaido is in Japan, it's a GMO-free zone. There are GMO-free zones all throughout Europe, and there's strict labeling of genetically modified foods in the European Union. However, the United States doesn't do that. In the United States, over a dozen states have attempted to do what California is doing now, and we failed. And we failed pretty much because we were outgunned and outspent in advertising. And so this is really a a momentous circumstance for farmers and consumers to see if we can win one small victory for consumers here in California that will give additional spirit and help inspire other consumers and farmers all throughout the country to try again in their state to try to get it done. Mm-hmm. because this is one of the biggest issues that's arisen for us, and we really are hopeful that we'll be able to beat Goliath just as David did long ago. Well, we've got social media on our side. We've got the connection between the farmer and the consumer, and word of mouth is pretty darn powerful. So once again, I want to thank Mr. Stephen Sprinkle for being my guest. He's an organic farmer based in California. He's been describing Proposition 37 for us. We want to make sure that consumers all over the country follow this issue. There are several sites that we can go to. California Right to Know, that's carighttoknow.org is one. Just That's where you should go if you're if you're interested in supporting the measure financially too. 
great. There's just labelit.org, and then there's the cornucopia.org website as well, and we'll post those on our website. Thank you so much, Steve, for being my guest. My uh, pleasure. It's quite an honor to speak with you, and thanks so much. I really think you're doing a great job. Well, thank you. And in closing, I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. Stay focused on this issue. It's important. And thank you, Mr. Sprinkle, for being my guest.